Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Today, we're hosting a unique budget program with the entire Defense and Aerospace Report team for a roundup of the Biden administration's $842 billion defense spending request to bolster U.S. warfighting capabilities to better deter China while continuing to support Ukraine in its war against Russia and address other threats around the world. In a briefing yesterday, Deputy Defense Secretary Dr. Kath Hicks and Joint Chiefs Vice Chairman Admiral Chris Grady stressed the administration is investing in future capabilities rather than near-term priorities, including highly classified programs accelerating the purchase of long-range precision weapons from hypersonics to subsonic missiles to artillery shells, Hicks made clear the department will be buying new weapons as fast as industry can produce them and invest in new capacity for future production, command and control systems, space, cyber investment, more combat aircraft and ships, including three submarines and more people for the Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps and Space Force and a 5.2 percent government wide pay raise that applies to military and civilians, uh, as well as uh, massive spending to bolster flagging recruiting. But the budget also faces criticism from Republicans who note the top line is lower than expected. And while 3.2% higher than last year isn't enough to compensate for rising inflation and lower than the 7% increase in China's military spending budget. And some decisions are controversial, including gapping acquisition of large amphibious warships and opting against a new engine for the F-35 fighter that would give the jet a 30% increase in range which would make it more relevant in the Indo-Pacific. Amphibious shipmaker HII and GE Aerospace, the maker of the XA-100 engine that is seeking to displace Pratt & Whitney's F-135, are among our sponsors. Joining us today is our team, Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, the co-hosts of the Cavus Ships podcast, sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters each week, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and J.J. Gertler, who joins me every week to co-host the Air Power podcast uh, that is sponsored by GE Aerospace. Everybody, welcome aboard, uh, and it's great to have this first ever Defense and Aerospace uh, Report Budget Analysis Roundtable. But first, a quick word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, And I should point out our coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association's uh, annual Aerospace Warfare Symposium was sponsored by GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. And our coverage of South by Southwest uh, was sponsored Uh, by Bell and Leonardo DRS. Okay, guys, uh, thanks very much again. And I want to kind of go around the horn. I basically have two questions that I'm going to let most of you do uh, the talking. Cervello first, let's let's talk to you sort of as our more joint uh, asset. Um, You know, give us give us a sense on the macro DOD view uh, about the budget, what they got wrong, what they might not be getting wrong. And later on in the program, I want to get, you know, how Congress is going to respond from all of you as well. And I should point out, even though Chris is a a uh, proud Naval Academy graduate and a retired commander in the United States, uh, retired United States Navy commander. He is also going to do double duty in giving us uh, Army uh, analysis yet because we don't yet have an Army show. Chris, take it away. 
for me personally, the big themes were um, the this budget did not deliver short-term capability, as you mentioned in your uh, opening, um, that there was indeed lots of procurement and R&D money, and we'll go through that by uh, by each service uh, as we go around the horn. And it's a great budget if you expect to fight in 10 years. I think there are a lot of folks that thought we would see more in this fit up and particularly in the next two to three years, um, but um, that that was lacking. Um, look, uh, DOD said that they were gonna build a budget that aligned to the national defense strategy. And I think from their perspective, they did. Um, there is money in there to defend the homeland and to stay ahead of the, the PRC. Um, the, you know, there is money to deter against strategic attacks against the United States. They feel like there's money to, that deters aggression, particularly from China uh, and Russia. Um, and they felt like they made investments, uh, you know, in a resilient joint force. You see money for sexual assault prevention and sexual har harassment prevention. You see money for, um, you know, family money. You see the pay raise in there. You see improvements in housing and, and, and education. Um, the, the big things that I would say, and again, you hit some of this in the opening, but $145 billion for RDT&E for research, development, test, and evaluation, that, that's a significant amount of money. Um, the, the question will be is how quickly can that money turn into actual capability? And the $170 billion for procurement, um, you know, with the largest investments being you know, near and dear to my heart, $481 billion for sea power, including uh, nine battle force ships. Um, 13.9 billion for land power for the Army and the Marine Corps, 37.7 billion for nuclear enterprise modernization, 29.8 billion for missile uh, defeat and defense, uh, and 11 uh, billion um, for uh, precision weapons. So um, they feel like they delivered a, uh, a very strong budget. Um, I, I think it'll be up to the services to go up to the Hill and defend that budget, and we'll see what Congress does. Um, in, indeed, right? I mean, in almost any case, we would say this is a terrific budget. Uh, there are a lot of folks uh, in each of the military services and uh, OSD who are very frustrated uh, at the lower amount at the last minute. Um, uh, and I think that that's what you're uh, hearing lawmakers respond to and every every expectation that lawmakers are going to plus this up. But we'll get to the goods and the political bads in a minute. Uh, Cavus, uh, walk us through uh, both Navy and Marine Corps side uh, on what's going on, right? I mean, the good news, uh, more money, more ships, more subs, more weapons, more people, uh, new classified efforts, $12 billion, uh, which looks like it's for a new fighter, but no uh, big amphibious ships. Uh, for five years, which many people would say is problematic, given the LPD-17 in particular uh, is really one of the nation's most useful assets, even as the Marine Corps tries to go to this sort of distributed mindset that uh, Commandant Berger has been pushing of light amphibious warships. Walk us through sort of the waterfront, uh, no pun intended, or maybe pun intended. Well, of course, what you look for is is really what's, what are the contentious areas going to be uh, when it comes to Congress? And I mean, the Navy's, you know, the request, the total request is almost $256 billion, 202 for the Navy itself, 53 billion for the, for the Marine Corps. Um, but the, you know, most of the procurement looks, lo looks like um, it, it'll pass through without major comment. Um, operations is good, money's good, maintenance is, is, is up. Um, the whole budget itself, the Navy budget is up 5% overall. But the, uh, the contentious areas are probably gonna be there, there, well, there are several. I mean, the, the outstanding one is this um, perplexing and rather quixotic, uh, they call it a strategic pause in LPD production. LPDs are amphibious transport docks, the San Antonio class uh, ships. They're very big. They're 25,000 tons. They're about $2 billion a pop. 
they're built by uh, Huntington Ingalls down in Pascagoula, Mississippi. But um, Navy uh, already last year signaled that, that this was an intent. Congress said, we don't want you to do that. Congress put money in for a long lead, actually, uh, actually awarded money uh, about $250 million, uh, this year and then 23 budget for long lead procurement items for the for an LPD, which was which should have been ordered this year, which should have been in this budget. It's not there. The Navy has, hasn't put any contracts on it. There's a five-year gap. It is not at all clear where this is coming from. It does not seem to be coming from the Navy. It seems to be coming from OSD, the, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, probably the, the Office of CAPE itself. Um, it doesn't, it's not explained. Uh, the Navy was reluctant to point that out, that it was not coming from them, um, that it was coming from OSD and slash CAPE. Uh, it seems to be more the case every day that uh, we're, we're kind of dribbling this through. It's unexplained what, what, what is going on. There have been major um, studies on every level in the amphibious force and in this design in the last four or five years. And it's, it's hard to imagine what else there is to study. They're not claiming it's a, it's a money issue. They're not claiming they want to reprogram the money elsewhere. They're just saying we want to pause and make sure we're doing the right thing here, which of course is what my people should be doing most of the days that they go to work. Um, other highlights, uh, we have three submarines in this program, which is extremely unusual. It's been, it's been a very, very, very long time. We've seen three in one budget. That's uh, the, the second Columbia class uh, ballistic missile submarine and two fast attacks. Uh, the, the profile is to keep building two fast attack submarines as Virginia class submarines throughout the fit up. Um, they'll they'll uh, gap the, the SSBN, the boomer next year, but then come back and, and still have three, three um, a year. That's a big chunk of change. So they're getting about $32 billion in shipbuilding, but that's um, not entirely Navy requirement since the Columbia class submarine, which is incredibly expensive. Um, is a national strategic requirement. It's not a naval requirement. It's not a force structure right. requirement in the Navy, um, which, which is a distinction that really needs to be made. Um, and Congress has decided the Navy needs to buy it and the Navy needs to pay for it along with everything else. Um, those are the, 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 those are, the, are the big procurement surprises. Uh, they're still building two destroyers a year, even though they, they talk about they want to build more. Um, the explanation for that is that industry as a, as a whole cannot, um, if they order two a year, they're not getting two per year. Um, they seem to be tying um, the lesser performing bath iron works to the overall structure of the, of the industrial base. And that seems to be, you know, that, that, that's probably gonna be contentious as well. Um, right. the other, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the other side, uh, ships that are leaving, they're still taking ships out of service. There are eight ships to come out this year. Um, three of them are actually Actually, two of them, the, the Vicksburg, the cruiser Vicksburg and the amphibious ship Tortuga were named in the current uh, 2023 Authorization Act um, to, for, for the Navy to keep them and not decommission them while they're, because they're spending a great deal of money to modernize them right now. Um, they're back into the, in the decommission list along with the Calpins. Between those three ships, it's almost... It's about three quarters of a billion dollars that the Navy spent to try to, re to recondition them. Now they want to get rid of them before they, they return them to service. And they're also want to put in, want to decommission two um, uh, independence class littoral combat ships. So it was somewhat of a surprise. Both those ships have, uh, have deployed to the Western Pacific, apparently successful deployments. Um, it's not, not terribly explained uh, 
other than you know, um, well, we 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 we've readjusted our force structure, and in, in what way? Right. Um, that'll right. Congress will will be digging into that. In, indeed, uh, and uh, you know there are those who would make the argument that we need to actually be getting to three uh, attack submarines a year, uh, and I'll, it's going to be interesting to see how AUKUS plays in all of this as well. If the United States is going to be providing uh, Virginia class submarines to the Australians, I'm going to I'm going to uh, keep moving here because we have a finite amount of time and 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 uh, a lot more uh, to cover. Uh, JJ, uh, let me go to you and get sort of the air power uh, part of this. Right, you and I uh, spoke to Secretary Kendall a couple of weeks ago. I was at Aerospace. Warfare Symposium uh, last week, where we had a lot of conversations. The secretary said 20 new starts, uh, 12 uh, sort of new programs. I guess the other eight would be significant modifications. And we discussed the tanker effort uh, a little bit last uh, week. What are the sort of the high points uh, of the Air Force uh, budget? Uh, and a lot of disappointment, obviously. And I can say this, you know, not on behalf of our, I mean, obviously our the sponsor is upset about it, but I would say that the overwhelming sense was that the F-35 needs that engine, whether you were talking, we needs a new engine that gives it greater range uh, and cooling and power generation capabilities uh, that would make it uh, more relevant, right? And make a shorter range fighter more relevant in the Indo-Pacific, but kind of walk us through the whole waterfront on what are uh, the biggest things that sort of jumped out. Sure, Vago. And I'm not convinced that, frankly, the AETP engine effort is over. We can talk about that more when we get to the congressional section. But really in terms of air power, mostly the United States Air Force, but really all of the services, there are three big stories. Number one is an aggressive air power acquisition budget. Last year, the Air Force projected that this year they'd be asking for 29 F-35s. They're asking for 48. They're asking for 24 F-15EXs. That total fleet started out at 144. It got cut down to 80. The Air Force is taking it back up to 104 aircraft. Second major uh, thrust is retirements, 310 aircraft coming out of the United States Air Force, including all of the KC-10s, all of the J-STARS, all of the A-29 Tucanos, all of this part of paying for that aggressive air power procurement program, which, by the way, is not just the Air Force, the Navy, 15 F-35s, the Marine Corps, five F-35s, all of that going off into the future. The third major thrust, however, is things that aren't coming back. We knew that the F-18 line was ending, and in fact, there are no F-18s in this budget forever. But we didn't know that the services were not going to be buying any V-22s of any description. And if you are 67 years of age or younger, the C-130 production line has been going for your entire life. There are two more C-130s in this budget for next year, and then that line apparently goes away. Uh, it's uh, it's really uh, quite uh, incredible. Uh, and and very quickly about Link Pulmeria, uh, a big classified program, uh, roughly uh, $12 billion. Uh, that's the Navy's NGAD, right? That's most likely Link Plumeria. Uh, the, when you have a program that starts with Link, that traditionally has been an electronically oriented program. But in this case, the numbers suggest that, yes, the Navy is finally getting serious about its next generation air effort. 
Uh, although uh, that that's an that's an excellent uh, and very very nuanced uh, watcher budget watcher uh, point, and we should also point out, right? I mean, each of the military services has uh, is really bolstering the, bolstering their classified investment, including in electronic and electronic warfare capabilities. So that that could be uh, another uh, program. Uh, that uh, that exists uh, because as everybody uh, and again the deputy secretary talked about the importance of battle management. Now that we have the air breathing side side of it, Laura J. Winter, talk to us about the space breathing side of it. Uh, Eight thousand folks, roughly, in the space force, getting eight hundred more people, uh, which is a significant boost and a lot of investment in terms of where the budget is going. Give us kind of the top line, uh, you know, direction we're heading in and what the priorities for the United States Space Force are. Well, a top line comes from uh, the SECDEF note that uh, came out yesterday with the rest of the budget papers, which put in $33.3 billion in vital space capabilities, uh, resilient architectures, and enhanced C2. And so that's across all of the services, all of their space stuff. But when we actually look at the Space Force, Space Force got a plus up of 15% or $3.7 billion dollars. Last year, or rather this year for 23, they have uh, 26.3 billion. And for next year, the budget ask is 30 billion. Now, this is where things kind of get interesting. It's what a friend of mine calls the great flippening. And what I mean by that is it's now flipped where Space Force actually has a bigger budget than NASA. NASA's budget ask is 27.2. So actually the Space Force uh, is hopefully, at least that's what the administration wants, is, is going to get more money. And so it comes to a bit of a philosophical question. Are we phasing out of the Lewis and Clark phase of space exploration and then going into the Calvary? Or is this just sort of an odd thing for just this one year? Um, besides that, we have our DT&E, that's $19.2 but most of that money is for low Earth orbit and middle Earth orbit missile tracking. Um, there's not a whole lot going on in science from what I've been told by my sources. And so that kind of begs the question of, you know, are we really getting ready for the future fight? Now, I heard what Chris Cervello said at the top that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, money in this for a future fight that maybe is a, a decade off. But if we don't put money into science, into the, you know, science of, of space, then, you know, I'm not really sure if, you know, that's all in there for at least on the space force side of things. And this is where it kind of gets important. You know, um, the CSO Saltzman said, you know, we're in a race to build combat credibility before we're put to the test. And, you know, I think the budget does go a long way towards that. But, you know, I'd like to see a bit more in science. And I also right. would like to see a bit more in deterrence. And you said earlier on that you want to know, you know, how this would possibly be received by Congress. Well, Last week, uh, there was a Hask uh, subcommittee hearing and Representative Seth Moulton uh, of Massachusetts was very, very focused on hearing how the Space Force was going to go about deterring aggression in space. 
and said, you know, you have to, you know, how do you deter people? Will you deter people when you show them that you have the capability to punch back and that you demonstrate that punch and that you demonstrate the willingness to throw that punch? And right. as of yet, you know, that hasn't been demonstrated. And that's just, that's just a fact. Uh, and just real quick, I want to point out to the audience that this is also one of the largest nuclear modernization budgets that we've seen in a long time with all elements of the triad, including the command and control, the space layers, uh, all being invested in from the Air Force's ground-based strategic uh, 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 deterrent uh, weapon called the Sentinel, uh, all the way to the B-61, uh, which is the airdrop munition uh, to the B-21 bomber and, of course, the Columbia uh, class uh, ballistic missile uh, submarines. Chris, I want to go to you and ask you to do a little bit of double duty, uh, you know, uh, not just talking about the United States Army, of course, and where the budget is, right? I mean, they, they did have a budget increase, but it doesn't include more people for the Army. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it does fund uh, the key six uh, modernization priorities uh, of the force, right? I mean, so not a lot of drama. And we've heard from Air, uh, uh, Army Acquisition Executive Doug Bush on uh, uh, certainly what we're doing on the artillery side of the equation that by next year, we hope to be getting to 90,000 uh, 155 rounds uh, a month. But also give us a little bit of a sense on what the Marine Corps uh, is doing with his budget, right? As Dave Berger, uh, the Commandant, continues to drive his transformation uh, of the United States Marine Corps. Let me start with the Marine Corps, and then we'll uh, we'll finish up with the Army. Um, as Chris mentioned, uh, $53 billion of the Na Department of Navy's $255 billion budget request is for the Marines. Uh, the plan funds for about 206 100,000 active duty Marines and reserve members. That's a few hundred more than the projected Marines for uh, this current fiscal year. Um, it also um, adds three new Marine littoral regiments and five traditional infantry reg regiments as the Marine Corps focuses on what they would need um, to deal with uh, the Pacific challenge. Uh, two thirds of the Marine Corps budget would fund personnel operations and maintenance, and about 25% would fund procuring weapons, vehicles, uh, and equipment with 10% for construction projects and for R&D. Um, and so what you see overall is about a $1.3 billion increase from the 2023 Marine Corps in, enacted budget. There really were no surprises on the, on the Marine side. I mean, you see the things that Berger has been talking about since he became commandant four years ago, um, the uh, light amphibious warship, or, um, which has a, a new name, the sort of the medium uh, amphib uh, is what they're referring to it as. But, you know, what was laws is progressing along. Um, there's uh, some testing and validating that's going to occur in, in this budget proposal. Um, so uh, again, not not a ton of surprises from uh, from the Marine Corps. Um, moving to the Army, uh, as you mentioned, I mean the Army identified six key areas that their $185.5 billion budget request goes after. Um, if you look at 23 versus 24. Um, you know, it's a 4.6 increase uh, this year over last year's uh, budget. Uh, military personnel spending is up, uh, request is up 1%. Operations and maintenance is up 3.4%. Procurement request is up almost 10%. RDT&E is up uh, just over 15%. Milcon, a uh, big increase, 46.3%. Uh, um, and then they they cut in some of the, what they're calling other areas, uh, which are down uh, 5%. Some of the big picture uh, ads um, that, that they're going after in this budget uh, in the Pacific, um, they're investing in long range fires, air defense, and deep sensing. Um, they're um, 
going to be some money put towards additional training and experimentation with partners and allies. Uh, and there's um, some money put towards contested logistics capabilities, particularly watercraft, fuel uh, distribution, and, and other enablers um, as they look towards what could be uh, a future fight. In terms of readiness, they invest in uh, exercises um, really all over the world. Um, so that's where some of that additional um, money goes. And there's additional uh, combat training uh, rotation and flying hour money. Um, in terms of uh, recruiting, I mean, this is a, a big piece, as you mentioned at the top. Um, they put um, 389 million towards uh, funding marketing and advertising. Um, so that's everything from social media to what you'd see on TV to what you'd see uh, to targeted, um, you, you know, Google type ads. Um, they're going to expand their recruiting uh, market presence. Um, as well as uh, future soldier prep courses. Um, there's a, you know, all the services deal with people that go through the recruiting process and actually leave the process before they actually get to boot camp. Um, so that's that prep course that they're uh, they're trying to uh, to increase. And then there's additional money that goes towards soldier referral programs um, and as well as increased recruiting and retention. Uh, bonuses. Um, th they're also putting uh, a lot of money, in, as I mentioned, on uh, modernization, um, you know, across those modernization priorities that you mentioned that uh, Assistant Secretary Bush talked about, um, including the production of critical munitions, uh, which, which tends to be where the, the majority of their RDT&E money goes. Um, and then uh, lastly, you know, no, no surprise, uh, a real focus on taking care of their people, investments in barracks and family housing, childcare, what they're calling resource efforts to prevent harmful behaviors, but that gets at suicide, it gets a sexual assault and sexual harassment, um, as well as uh, the 5.2% the increase, uh, as well as basic needs allowance increases for the Army. So that's their $185 billion uh, in, in a glance. Again, no real surprises. I think if you're an Army guy or gal, you'd say you're a little disappointed that this number wasn't bigger, but you're probably happy that you didn't see more of a cut as some people in the Navy and Air Force have advocated for. Uh, in, indeed, because I think at the end of the day, right, I mean, I, I believe that that is a risky move at this point. It's vital for us to make that investment and to make it more broadly. We don't have a lot of time uh, left, unfortunately, and I uh, suggest uh, to the audience to check out all of our programs uh, as we're going to be uh, eating our way through the budget elephant, uh, as the saying goes, as disgusting uh, a notion uh, as that is. Uh, uh, real quick around the horn, Chris, JJ, Laura, uh, and then Chris again. You know, what, what is it uh, that members of Congress seek to undo, right? I mean, we know on the amphibious warship side, uh, members are going to be talking about that. We know on the F-35, uh, you know, walk, walk us through where you guys see potential pushback uh, on each of your services relative uh, patches. Uh, and again, Cervelo sort of bring us home from a top line OSD perspective uh, where, where we go uh, with that. And I also want to point out that the Washington Roundtable uh, with our normal cast of characters on Friday is going to take uh, a deep dive uh, into this as well. Start us off, Cavus. I'm not so sure that uh, Congress will be that upset about this. There, there'll be, there's always noise from the opposition. Um, but, uh, and in terms of actually, you know, movement, uh, probably most of this will sail through the one, the big one that will be controversial is the LPD suspension. It's not a pause. It's a suspension because there's no, there's no LPD in here for, for the entire fit up that's through 28 through 2028. So that's, that's not a pause. That's, that's a suspension. Um, and I think Congress is really going to push back on that hard. I'll be, I'll, I'll be surprised if that goes through. Um, the, the, the rest of it, 
probably pretty good. They'll, they will like the submarines. Um, the submarines three, three per year is ambitious. It's going to stretch the industrial base um, and it eats a ton of money. Um, uh, more than a third of the, of, the, of the shipbuilding budget this year is for those three submarines. But um, by and large, I think they're going to go through. They're going to go through with the decommissionings. I don't, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't think they're going to stop the eight ships that the Navy is asking to, um, to, to, to take away. JJ, uh, your sense on how some of these uh, Air Force decisions are going to go down, because there is a lot of uh, there has been some criticism and some pushback that the United States Air Force should not be getting rid of hundreds of airplanes uh, at a moment like at a moment like this. You know, the KC-10, again, an extraordinary capability, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, even as the Air Force starts to invest in other platforms, uh, you know, to try to do, for example, space based moving target indication, which is what JSTARS does. JSTARS is is a very capable platform, but highly manpower uh, or people power intensive. Walk us through sort of what passes, what doesn't as somebody who used to sit on the Armed Services Committee uh, and help adjudicate some of these matters as a professional staff member. Well, first, Vago, I have to apologize to the United States Marine Corps. I mentioned that they were getting five F-35Bs. It's actually four for the next three years. Okay, as we get to Congress, a couple of big issues. One, With regard to aircraft numbers, the Air Force has already done most of what Congress usually does, which is to bring their numbers up from where they were expected to be this year. And one big difference with these retirements than in previous years, when you're talking about retiring these fleets, the Air Force already has plans in place to replace them. In previous years, the Air Force would take away without a promise of a carrot uh, on the other end that this year Yes, the KC-10s are going away, but there's a tanker replacement program. Yes, we're going to see the E-3s phase out, but they're going to get replaced by E-7s. That's already uh, in plan. So the congressional resistance on that may be comparatively small. With regard to the alternate engine program, however, I think that uh, we have indications that that was in the Air Force's plan until the very last minute when an inflation adjustment took away the money for that program which means it's top of their list. And I will be not at all surprised to see that show up in an unfunded requirements list and or for Congress to take it on its own initiative to keep that development program going, which is unlike the previous uh, engine, alternate engine program, a competitive program rather than an earmark for a particular company. Laura, your sense on congressional pushback, and Chris, let's uh, go to you on where you think uh, the pressure points are going to be, and then we'll wrap it for today. Go ahead, Laura. I don't think there's going to be a a sense of pushback. I think it's more of a push forward. Congress is really interested in China. I mean, there's obviously the, the separate committee that's looking at competition with or strategic competition with China. So therefore, when we get into, you know, the, the things that have to do with the space force and, and space power, Congress is really interested in deterring China from actually attacking our space assets. And they really want a demonstration or, or, or something, some indication, some message that is sent to the PRC and the PLA saying, hey, don't touch our stuff or we will shoot back. And, you know, the SECAF did say that, There are some soft and hard kill capabilities, but they're all classified. And therefore, you know, that that signal, that message going to China so far is not being sent out. So I think Congress is really looking for 
you know, something about deterrence that is going to keep our space assets um, safe from China. The other big argument that is going to happen on the Hill insofar as space forces is the Space Force National Guard. It came up in this year's budget, in the 23 budget, and it got tamped down uh, by the White House. But in the past two weeks or so, there have been rumblings, again, about the creation of a Space Force National Guard. The grumpus or the point of debate is on whether or not it would be more expensive to create one or you know, if not creating one, you know, what, how does that affect readiness? Because a lot of the space operators that are in the reserve or in the National Guard area, they're with the Air Force and they don't get the same training and do not get to train with their Space Force colleagues. So that's, that's where that debate is. Um, but everything else, I think they're just going to go along with what the Department of Defense says. I don't think there's, you know, anything out of line, you know, if they, they might take a look at science, as I mentioned before, because a lot of the uh, money is going for hard assets as opposed to, you know, really looking forward to, you know, what's, you know, what science could do to, you know, help defend uh, our space assets. But I don't think that there's going to be much pushback, as I said. I think it's going to be really more of a push forward. Let's get this going. Chris? So Vaga, I'll wrap it up with, I think, two themes that you're going to hear from uh, folks on both sides of the aisle when OSD officials and the service uh, leadership go over to the Hill. Secretary Hicks, when asked about the U.S. defense budget in comparison to the 7.2% increase in the Chinese defense spending in, uh, for 2023, um, her comment was, you know, we're convinced that inputs don't necessarily translate to outputs. Uh, and that they were uh, much more confident in the outputs of the U.S. military uh, versus, uh, you know, competitors in China and Russia. Uh, she even went as far as to say is that we don't have a paper military. I think you're going to see a lot of pushback on that idea that inputs don't equal outputs uh, from, from the Hill and that they're going to want to know why there weren't more inputs um, in, in certain areas, as members of our panel um, mentioned. The second is, is um, throughout all of the briefings, there was a lot of industry blaming and industry scapegoating. Um, and, and maybe that's too hard a term, but I really don't know of a more eloquent or nuanced way of saying it. Um, you know, when asked, why didn't you put more money here? Why didn't you put more money there? Or why would, why didn't you do this? Essentially, the uh, DOD leadership said, hey, because industry can't meet the need. I think you're going to see um, Congress push back on that, and they're going to push hard that, you know, both in this administration and the previous administration, the, the lack of strategy and the lack of planning over the last two fit-ups um, has brought us to where we are. And it's not as simple as just blaming industry, that um, DOD needs to do a better job of helping industry meet those needs and not just scapegoating them. So those to me are the big themes that I think you're going to hear throughout all of the hearings. Um, and I would put uh, some of this onus also on Congress. Stop. You know, we, we need to get to a regular budget process. That's something where uh, Deputy uh, Secretary Hicks uh, and uh, Admiral Grady, uh, I think, both mentioned, and I think rightfully so, there's no way to do a new start if you have a full year continuing resolution or even prolonged continuing resolutions. And so now that we're looking at this debt 
the potential debt debacle uh, as uh, the banking system, right? Because of the Silicon Valley bank failure, the signature bank failures, uh, right? I mean, there's a lot of concern about uh, the outlook, whether it constrains the Federal Reserve's uh, ability to continue fighting uh, inflation, right? I mean, so the important thing is let's get to regular budget order uh, at the end of the day. I think I speak for us all. I especially speak for JJ uh, and, um, you know, so the onus really is on members of Congress. Let's get on the good foot here, uh, as the saying goes, uh, and get it done. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And I urge our audience to tune in uh, to all of our products for deeper looks uh, on uh, the budget uh, and on our regular week-to-week and day-to-day coverage. Everybody, thanks so very, very much, and particularly to Laura, uh, who is Uh, in a remote uh, but beautiful part uh, of the country where she's uh, reporting for. Thanks, uh, reporting from. Thanks very much again, all.